Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. It's a very timely hot question of the day today as well. I know it's cold season, right? You probably know somebody who has a cold. Pretty much everybody in our workplace in the last week has been down with a cold. I go home, same thing. And yet people trudge on right? They go into work because there's not already people are out sick. What are you supposed to do? So later on the show, we're going to be talking about sick notes, whether or not your management or your boss requires you to bring in a sick note. And if that's the case, then don't you think people just show up to work sick rather than go to the trouble of getting the sick note? And then you're making it worse because now you're making everybody else sick at work too. So we're going to talk about this dilemma that people every year, all the time, find themselves in. So for our hot question of the day today, we're asking you, since cold and flu season is with us once again, do you take the day off from work when you have a cold? Do you say, yeah, I have to, it protects others. I don't want everybody else getting sick. Or do you say, no, I need need to show up. And listen, if you're self-employed, you think about that, right? A day off means that you're not getting paid. And there's so many self-employed people out there who they can't afford to do it, which means they're out and about, whether it's in sales or whatever the case may be. And we are just perpetuating the same thing over and over and over again. So that's our hot question of the day. Check it out. You'll see it at Sarah 980 on Twitter or at CKNW on Twitter. Let us know what your thoughts are on that. Do you say, yes, I do take the day off because it protects others or no, you need to show up at work. You don't really have a choice about that. Now, you can use our buzz line, tell me a story. This is, I'm sure this has happened to you. You probably got a story to tell us about. That number is 604-331-2899 or drop me an email, simi at cknw.com. It's a tough one for a lot of people, right? There's probably days where you really want to be able to stay home, but then you know, oh man, there's going to be so much work waiting for you. There's nobody to fill in for you. It's going to cause so many problems. So you drag yourself in. What do you do during cold and flu season when you have a cold? Do you drag yourself into work? Well, BC politics never disappoints, right? Something's always happening. Something's always changing. And on this Monday morning, that is no exception. As we heard about an hour or so ago, BC Green Party leader Andrew Weaver has announced that he is not seeking re-election in his Oak Bay Gordon Head riding in the next election. And on top of that, he will be stepping down as leader of the party. So let's find out what this is all about. What's going on here? Keith Baldry joins us now, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief in Victoria. Good morning, Keith. Morning, Simi. Okay, so wondering all weekend long what this was all about, there was really no sign that this was coming, was there? Not at this time, and it was certainly an open question whether Weaver was going to run again. I'd been speculating for some time. I didn't think he would seek re-election, but we're still two years out from the vote. So it was surprising that uh, he's announcing today that uh, this is his intention. I asked him on Friday afternoon after his party released a news release, a cryptic news release that said he would be making a significant announcement on Monday. I said, does this mean you're stepping down or stepping aside? And at that time he said, no, 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 nothing like that. And I think he was just trying to ensure nobody had the story out before he actually made the announcement. So I, I feel like I was misled. But nevertheless, um, it's, again, not totally surprising. Uh, he's uh, been there for two terms. He is on the record for saying that MLA shouldn't overstay their welcome. He did think, I think he is in favor of term limits. Uh, so uh, his explanation today was he wanted to uh, pull the plug early uh, to give the party time enough to uh, engage in a, a leadership race, a transition, to get a new leader in place, by his estimation, sometime early next summer is when he hopes a new leader will be in place. But he's not giving up his seat uh, before the next election. Right. I guess I-, I was wondering why he didn't just say, well, Keith, you have to wait until Monday to find out what that is. Yeah, I wish he had said that. Otherwise, I wouldn't have said on Twitter, you can bet the bank, take it to the bank that he's not stepping aside. Because he is stepping, and then today he said, "Well, I'm not stepping aside." Well, it was sort of a semantical yeah. argument the two of us had in a rather spirited exchange. But uh, <laughs> it was um, 
uh, again, the, media, the Greens aren't the best media managers in terms of their message, so this is a bit of a fumbled thing. It was in the Globe today, Globe and Mail. Uh, he denies that it has anything to do with his recently diagnosed health issues about labyrinthitis, which is sort of a uh, an inner ear balance thing. He says nothing to do with that. It's just time to make way for right. another leader. Also, he, he underscored, uh, again, the fact that this does nothing to endanger the support the Greens have for the NDP government. That, that uh, CASA, the Confidence and Supply Agreement, is still very much in place. Uh, so that's not being impaired by this at all. He will continue to support the government on confidence matters, but uh, he just wants to make way for a new leader come uh, the next election. Okay, so then what does that mean for the next year or so then for the Green Party? Well, I mean, the situation is normal, I think. Uh, the three MLAs are who they are. They are the Green Party for you know all intents and purposes. Even when a new leader is chosen, uh, that person will be hard to establish the profile that any of the three members have in the House right now, unless it's someone who's currently in the caucus, whether it's MLA Sonia Furstenau or MLA Adam Olson. I have no idea whether they'd be interested in becoming party leader or not. Presumably they'd have a leg up if they were choose to run, because they certainly have a higher profile than anyone else in the party. But it's early days on this. Uh, we'll know more, I think, as, as time progresses. And I think, I suspect the Greens will be in full-on leadership race sometime next spring. But this fall session, which begins today and runs to near the end of November, will still feature Andrew Weaver as the leader of the Green Party. So it, how much of a challenge do you see this as for the Green Party, though? Because, I mean, their success really has come during Weaver's time as leader. Exactly. I think it's a real challenge for the Greens. Uh, uh, the backdrop of this, of course, is the federal election campaign, which is ongoing. <clears throat> Recent polling from a number of pollsters has suggested the Green Party is slumping in the polls with public yeah. opinion. If they come out of this campaign with only Elizabeth May as the only member of the uh, only elected member of the Greens, that's a huge setback because the expectations for the Greens were pretty significant at the beginning of the federal campaign, and that will trickle down to the provincial level. That's bound to have an impact on the provincial Greens if they do if they fare badly. <clears throat> At, at the federal level, uh, that will reflect badly on the provincial level. How Now, flip the coin over, if they suddenly do elect a number of MLAs, particularly here on Vancouver Island, where they seem to have the best chance, that will give a boost to the provincial BC Green Party in terms of boosting their profile and their credibility. So I think a lot is riding on the federal outcome in terms of the impact it will have on the, on the provincial uh, Green uh, leadership race. Is there any federal move here for Andrew Weaver in the offing? He says absolutely not, uh, not interested at all. Uh, he's, he's ruled that out. Uh, the, uh, on the, working the other way, one name that has emerged in terms of uh, perhaps a, a factor in the provincial Greens is a guy named David Berner, who's the candidate for the federal Greens in Esquimalt, uh, Souk Sanich riding, just uh, outside, outside of Victoria here. He had been the federal Liberal candidate in that riding in the last election. He switched to the Greens. If he's not elected uh, come October 21st, uh, I've heard people talk about he's a potential um, leadership uh, aspirant. Uh, it shouldn't Weaver step aside? And what do you know? Weaver's stepping aside, despite what he told me on Friday. And that might put someone like David Berner in play. Uh, but if he wins and, and becomes an MP, of course, that's off the table. Right. Okay. Now, that's just one thing that is going on in Victoria today. Now, let's get an update as well on this whole Ginny Sim situation. What happened there? Yeah, we're still trying to put that together. Uh, late Friday, in fact, 5.17 p.m., John Horgan's office put out a news release saying Ginny Sims had resigned from Cabinet as, because uh, she was the subject of an RCMP investigation overseen by a special prosecutor, so uh, it was an untenable situation for her. Uh, she put out a statement saying that this had, uh, she'd been cleared of previous allegations. And those allegations were made by the Liberals in the legislature last uh, in, the, in the spring. And that was about a, w a whistleblower in her office, a former constituency uh, assistant, had alleged that she had improperly uh, signed some sponsorship documents for, for, uh, for people who she claimed were on a watch list. Uh, the Premier's office investigated. Ginny Sims says she'd been cleared of that. So she went out of her way to say, uh, I've already been cleared of these previous allegations, which by inference suggests there's other allegations yeah. out there. Now, those allegations were forwarded to the RCMP by the B.C. Liberals at the end of May. And the, so the RCMP got that. They must have done something or seen something 
that led them to ask for the assistance of a special prosecutor. And once that occurs, that kicks into motion, a, sort of a bunch of dominoes fall. And once a special prosecutor is requested and one is appointed by the criminal justice branch, uh, that's the, premier's, the attorney general is informed of that, who in turn informs the premier's office, and that meant Jenny Sims was out of a job in terms of being a cabinet minister. How long she remains out is a big unknown. My experience is special prosecutor investigations can take a long time yeah. to conclude. So this may, it's conceivable, I'm not saying it's definitely going to happen, but it's conceivable this is not wrapped up before the next provincial election, which is actually two years from this month, October 2021 is the next time we go to the polls, uh, unless something weird happens before then, and it's conceivable this, this is not uh, wrapped up by then. Are you surprised it has actually taken this long, though, for Jenny Sims to be removed from cabinet or to leave cabinet? Because, I mean, she hasn't exactly been stellar in that regard. No, she's been under uh, all sorts of controversy yeah. for uh, not ob- obeying FOI rules, of uh, email rules in terms of keeping copies and this such. The Liberals have been hammering away at her for some time. But I've seen ministers in trouble before, and it's the old uh, adage, I don't, we're not going to give them a trophy. And that's you know been the motto of government's from right back to the 80s to the 90s which is we don't want to give the opposition a trophy someone may be you know messing up significantly but unless it's a scandal involving the police or something uh, premiers are loath to replace a minister just because the opposition has embarrassed them from time to time so i'm not surprised Ginny Sims wasn't removed for that uh, but and i'm not surprised she she stepped down because there's an RCMP investigation that's that's pretty that's pretty cut and dried if you're under an RCMP investigation you cannot sit in cabinet full stop and uh, that's why I wasn't surprised that she stepped out on that basis. Right. Okay. So when it comes to this green leadership race, then do you think that solidifies the October 2021 election date? Because if that's next summer, the new leader is going to want some time to establish themselves. Yeah, I think so. I've never seen any indication that we'd have an early election. Um, the Greens are quite happy being where they are. Uh, they have no intention of, of allowing, opening the door, even a, a crack to allow the Liberals a chance of forming government with another election. So barring some sort of strange occurrence, uh, which literally would probably be the you know the death or, or one or more MLAs, uh, I don't see this government uh, pulling the plug or being forced from office before uh, October 2021. Unless John Horgan decides that he wants to create an issue to go to the people with. But that can be a bit of a gamble. Voters might say, you know what, I don't need an election. Voters actually oftentimes don't want an election. They just want to get on with their lives. And suddenly to have an artificial event um, created can can come back to bite you. You know, but having said that, Brian Pallister in Manitoba, good example, he called an early election and he won handsomely and it paid off for him. But I think the issue has to be a good one for Horgan, and right now there's not a good one on the horizon for you. Okay, so ledge back in session this week, then what do you expect is going to be the hot topic? Well, I think Ginny Sims will be up uh, first and foremost in question period today in terms of questions from the Liberals, not that Ginny Sims is going to say anything. Uh, in terms of issues in the, in, the, uh, in the session, Mike Farnworth tells me there's going to be about a dozen bills. He's the government house leader. Uh, a couple of them of substance, some of them just minor housekeeping things. So legislation is not going to be the real focus of this session. It'll be an interesting question period because a number of problems are, are cropping up on the NDP's plate. The economy is slowing down. Carol James has already issued an edict to, for some belt tightening. That's a signal that the finances aren't in great shape. You've got the ongoing forestry crisis. You've got all these stories, and we've heard them on your program, of ICBC mm-hmm. young people getting dinged with huge insurance bills. That's going to be a dominant issue in this session. Vaping, the call on the government to get more active in, in regulations of vaping amongst young people, that's going to be uh, first and foremost. So I think Jenny Sims is, an, is almost a one-day story until we can get more information. But I think the ongoing crisis in forestry, the ongoing sticker shock that's going to be there on a right. daily basis on ICBC is going to be rich fodder for the Liberals to, to dine out on, I think, for the next five weeks. All right, Keith, thank you. All right, to me. That's Keith Baldry, Global's Legislative Bureau Chief in Victoria. Lots going on in Victoria, as you can tell there. Well, there's a lot going on out there today. We're going to be talking about sick notes, whether or not you're required to take those into work, and how that could prove to be troublesome for a lot of people. Talk about rates of syphilis, which in BC are causing a big problem. We're going to hear more about that. Right now, we'll talk a little international news here, and it seems quite significant that a lot of people down in the States, politicians, who normally support U.S. President Donald Trump, really, no matter what happens, are singing a different tune this morning. And that is because he made a decision over the weekend to pull troops from northern Syria. 
and clear the way for what is expected to be an assault by Turkish forces into that zone there. And it essentially abandons Kurdish fighters who fought alongside American forces for years. So we're going to find out why this is so significant now. To talk more about it, we're joined by Professor Errol Mendez, who's from the University of Ottawa's Faculty of Law. Thank you very much for being here. You're very welcome. So this obviously seems to have deeply impacted U.S. politics today. Why do you think that is? Well, because I think um, the the people who were supporting, who are supporting uh, Donald Trump, begin to realize that this could actually create such huge problems, uh, not just for America but for the region and possibly the world. Keep in mind that there were American soldiers fighting with the YPG militia, the Turkish militia, who were the main ones who helped uh, uh, fight and defeat ISIS, Daesh, as it's called. And if, for example, the 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 U.S troops are withdrawn, Turkey will then move in and possibly wipe them out or push them further back and get, in essence, get Syria in the hands of not just Turkey, but potentially Iran and Russia. And for that reason, it is very dangerous. And even those who support Donald Trump realize that. And what is Turkey's goal here? What are, what are their ambitions in that region? Well, there's several goals. One is because they regard the YPG, who are the Turk, uh, Kurdish militia, as terrorists, mainly because they have associated with other Turkish groups, uh, sorry, Kurdish groups, to create, if you like, an independent country. Now, the YPG basically say that's not their goal. Their goal is to have autonomy within Syria. However, uh, the the Turks do not regard that as, as something which they are convinced of, and so they want to get rid of them. Secondly, they want to have a barrier between Syria and Turkey so they can push the two million uh, Syrians who fled Syria back into Syria in a, in a zone which they're calling a, a, a free, uh, in essence, a, a safe haven. I don't think it will be a safe haven, but nevertheless, that's their goal. Right. And when it comes to the Kurdish fighters then, Professor, I mean, these Kurds have, have fought with the United States, it almost seems like for decades, right? In other areas, like when it came to the Iraq war, they've always, it seems like, been promised something that they've never received. Well, they, they were the main force in, in eradicating ISIS. And it wasn't just U.S. soldiers who fought alongside them. Canadian soldiers did, too, um, especially our special ops people, too. So these are some of the most courageous fighters, not only men, also some of the most courageous women fighters in the world were also part of the YPG militia. I don't know whether you've seen pictures of them, um, but uh, it's amazing that we have really helped these uh, people against all odds to get rid of one of the most savage, uh, inhuman uh, group, and now that they have succeeded, that they are willing to endanger them. Now, keep in mind also that they managed to capture a large number of uh, Daesh or ISIS uh, captives. What's going to happen to them? Um, Will they be released um, and potentially then be a, a threat not only to Syria, but also Turkey and potentially internationally? So there's many, many repercussions from this. So why then would President Trump do this? I think it's all part of his electoral strategy. Mainly his promise that he would uh, get uh, troops out of all the combat zones around the world. Obviously, um, Afghanistan will be next on the agenda, but this is one where he can claim an immediate victory, and he desperately needs immediate victory. There's also a more malicious rumor going around that um, uh, in the recent past, uh, Turkey allowed there to be a Trump Tower in Istanbul, and some people are saying, could this be payoff? Uh, I hope that's not true. Right. But this has obviously disturbed people who are normally allies of this president in political circles in Washington, D.C., but will that have any kind of an impact? Well, there were already people starting to wonder how strong the alliance between Turkey and the U.S. would be. For example, uh, the Erdogan, who's now the uh, president of Turkey, has become an authoritarian leader within his own country and has started closing up to Russia in terms of buying arms from Russia. So there, there is now greater concern, especially now by those who are supporting uh, Trump, that he doesn't understand this, that he's so focused on just his electoral chances that he's not understanding that there are geopolitical movements which could ultimately seriously endanger the United States and indeed the allies of the United States, including Canada. Right. So is this actually going to happen then? Because I understand even the military and you know military leaders were caught off guard. So does this actually mean a withdrawal of American forces there? 
Well, it's going to be interesting to see one of his, uh, his strongest supporters, uh, Lindsey Graham, the senator who pretty much supports him on everything else, including impeachment, is now the strongest critic of it. If, if that continues, and keep in mind that um, if he's impeached by the House uh, of Representatives, he'll need at least the Senate to, to not convict him. If you have Lindsey Graham moving over, he's going to, he's going to start um, uh, changing his, his attitudes towards this. And what does this do for the American position in the world? desperately bad. Uh, it'll basically make people think if they cannot support some of the most courageous people who they and the Americans fought alongside, what else can we trust them on? And certainly this may have repercussions in terms of Afghanistan, in terms of the, the potential conflict with Iran. So yeah, it's going to be very bad in terms of uh, the U.S. position around the world. Have they sought any kind of guarantees? No, none at all. So that's what's worrying people, too, that what sort of discussions have gone along with um, Erdogan, the president of Turkey, before he made this announcement. Um, some of the insiders are saying this guy makes his decisions without consulting anybody. Right. And so essentially, I guess everybody now is just waiting to see what happens. What is the timeline like for this? Well, that's, again, something which is left up in the air. He wants it done immediately so he can have the electoral um, victory uh, in terms of just this one area where he's promised and he's delivered. So hopefully that there could be at least some people uh, stalling so that over time people like Lindsey Graham, his strongest supporter, may convince him to, to back off. Right. Do you think that's possible then? Because that is something we've seen before, right? Where if he realizes, no, he can't do this, his allies at home are going to be, his political allies will be upset. Is it possible this could still be reversed? Yeah, I think so. And uh, watch out for the next big uh, back off he's going to make. Apparently, um, uh, China is basically saying he's not going to give in for all the huge uh, demands that he's made on trade. Uh, that'll be a signal that if he can give, if he's giving in on that, he'll give in on almost anything else. Right. It's so unpredictable right now with American politics, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Professor Mendez, thank you for your time. You're very welcome. That is Errol Mendez, professor from the University of Ottawa's Faculty of Law, talking about this decision by the U.S. president over the weekend, which really shocked a lot of people, uh, to pull American troops from northern Syria, and that would clear the way for what is expected to be an assault by Turkey in the region. But it does essentially abandon Kurdish fighters who have fought alongside American and Canadian forces for years in that region. Well, today we definitely saw a bit of a weather change out there, didn't we? It seemed like beautiful fall weather yesterday and this morning, waking up to just sogginess. That's what it's been all morning long. And it sounds like there might be a little of unpleasantness in the forecast for us right across the lower mainland this week. That's why we have called up Mark Madriga, our Global BC Chief Meteorologist, <laughs> because he's got all the answers. Mark, what happened? Well, it's Simi. Good morning. It's uh, it's fall, and uh, the weather swings dramatically during this time of year, especially as we get into latter part of October, November, December. The storms get bigger and bigger as we go on. But uh, yeah, that was uh, a nice uh, weekend overall with some sun. And yes, yesterday the clouds moved in, and as you mentioned, uh, today the clouds are almost down to the ground. And it's it's not been pouring this morning as much as it was through the night, but uh, still a bit of rain out there now. What uh, what we had is uh, the first part of the weather system move in uh, overnight, fairly mild. It's about 12, 13 degrees out there this afternoon. Uh, it might even get up to 14, 15 in some spots, so pretty mild. And that includes all of southern BC. Dawson Creek woke up to 10 degrees. An hour later, it was zero and snowing. What? So, yeah, we know where the cold front is. That's the next thing that's coming through. So we're in the relatively mild air, as mentioned, uh, now and for the next few hours. A cold front is going to sweep through. That same cold front will sweep through the entire province uh, later today, tonight, and overnight. It won't snow in Vancouver. Don't worry. I wasn't implying that, even though it's, there is some snow along that cold front. But uh, there will be some snow on the mountain passes, uh, Coquihalla, Allison Pass, Okanagan Connector, all the passes in the southern interior. Where it's raining there now, it's uh, it's going to turn to snow up there late tonight through tomorrow morning. Five to ten centimeters could easily fall on those passes with the abrupt change to the colder air. Uh, another example of the change coming over in Calgary, there's 17 degrees today. Tomorrow yeah. in, in the afternoon, there'll be minus four. What? And snowing. So that's a 21 degree change in the afternoon afternoon high between today and tomorrow. This cool front is very, very intense, very well defined. So that's um, crazy, Mark. That's so they're going to yeah. go from I'm looking at their forecast 17 degrees today, minus yeah. three tomorrow. 
Yep, in the afternoon, and snow uh, kicking in there too. So uh, a big change coming. Now for Vancouver, we'll, um, there is lots of good news in the forecast. And, really? uh, well, <laughs> hang in there. Uh, again, a little rain through the afternoon. We'll get some clearing tonight. Gusty wind. That's the downside. It'll be quite blustery tonight. Not a warning yet for wind, but up to 60 kilometer an hour gusts. But the silver lining is uh, high pressure is going to settle in. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, all sun. Clear at nights. Nice. Okay, that's the upside. The downside is it'll be near frost values in the mornings, anywhere from plus one to plus three, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. But nice and crisp to start. It gets you a good start to the day, and then the sun takes over. So, um, yeah, it's one of these scenarios where we have a little of everything in the five-day forecast. Boy, okay, I don't mind that. I don't mind crisp and clear. I think that is just beautiful fall weather. But that mm-hmm. what we're seeing in Alberta, is that unusual, would you say, for this time of year? Uh, it's maybe not too common to have it this early in the year, but it does happen. Oh, I've seen snow. Well, we had snow in Calgary, what, a couple of weeks ago. Lots of it. That major storm that hit that area. That was, that was rare to get that much snow. But these little shots of snow with cold fronts moving through Alberta. Uh, yeah, it is early October. No, it's, it's, it, it does happen this time of year. Now, for our overnight lows uh, or morning lows, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday in Vancouver, I mentioned possible frost lows between about plus one, plus three. The record low for the air port for Wednesday is uh, plus three, and we'll get close to that. So locally, we're getting to those near record low temperatures. Uh, but again, the clear sky Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. It does sound like though, Mark, like here on the West Coast anyway, we have kind of, Knockwood so far, escaped the, kind of the crazy weather that we have seen elsewhere, like the record high temperatures or the snow or whatever the case is. Yeah, I, I know. It's been a fairly uh, quiet yeah. couple months. Uh, I know when it, the weather gets a little crazy and busy and uh, significant is when you you call me and, uh, and then I come on and say <laughs> oh, hello. So we are your barometer is what you're well, saying. Pretty much, and I haven't spoken with you for a little while, so That's it has true. been a quiet weather stretch. But uh, I'm looking, f- well, I shouldn't say I'm looking forward to speaking with you more more frequently. I am, but that would imply that the storms are going to get bigger and you'll want me to come on and ch- chat about them. True. But uh, at this time of year, yeah, it's October, and we sometimes get the biggest storms of the year. Wind storms, rain storms in October, November, as you know. All right. Sounds good, Mark. Well, I'm, I'd like to talk to you too, but hopefully not for all the wrong reasons, okay? <laughs> gotcha. Okay. All thanks right. for that, Mark. So, that's Mark Madriga, our Global VC Chief Meteorologist. Yes, we are in for a weather change, but nothing too extreme like they're seeing in Calgary. Well, we're talking today about whether or not you have to take a day off from work when you get sick and whether or not your employer requires you to get a doctor's note or a sick note. That's a big problem at this time of year because many employers do require that. It clogs up the medical system, right? Like how many of us actually can get a doctor's appointment on a day's notice? Not very many of us out there. The Canadian Medical Association calls this practice a public health risk, and we're going to find out why that is. Joining us now is Dr. Sandy Buckman, president of the Canadian Medical Association. Thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So why call this a public health risk? What is the concern here? Well, there's, uh, yeah, there's several concerns about the whole issue. I think that, you know, when during flu season, when uh, patients are showing up in doctor's offices, they're really just the opportunity to spread the disease further around um, without really getting much benefit uh, for the patient to be in a, a doctor's office at, at that time. So it's really increasing the risk of, of a contagious disease uh, that, uh, that we're concerned about. All right. And is this still, do you think, common practice? You, do you hear about this from people? You know, you do hear about it um, around pe- people are, are asking why they have to go to a physician's office to get a note. Um, you know, they're concerned about many things. Um, first of all, they're sick, they're unwell, and to take the time and effort to go to a doctor's office to get a note is really is actually really hard uh, on anyone. Um, in addition, you know, they're they're also we're also wondering about you know the cost to the healthcare system for something that's not really necessary is an issue. Um, and finally, there's kind of the extra administrative burden that is placed on uh, physicians and their staff uh, in an office where they have to, you know, provide a note, take the time. um, And uh, there are so many burdens these days that this seems to be one that can be uh, eliminated. Yeah, that's a good question. That's what I was wondering, too. How do doctors feel about this? Like if somebody shows up and says, oh, I need a note for work, how do doctors feel about that? 
Well, this is what this is what we're hearing from doctors. You know, they see that again, of course, administrative burden, but they're also questioning that this is no benefit to the patient that they're in. They're more likely to catch something else or spread it around, um, and that it's hard on them to get into the office. And uh, and so they're kind of feeling that this is something that's unnecessary and should be eliminated. Right. So really, that's a message that you have towards, I guess, employers at this point. Yeah, we'd like to get the message to employers that it's not really, that shouldn't be required. Um, we see very few patients taking advantage or abusing this kind of system. Uh, this is, uh, people are honest. And when they're, they're sick with a bad cold or the flu, um, they're really sick. And the best thing in our recommendation is to stay home and just give, you know, symptom, symptomatic uh, measures that help deal with the cold or a flu. And, of course, being aware of when it is necessary to call a physician. But I think we should be having a, a greater level of trust. And there's very little evidence that this uh, this privilege uh, of staying off work when you say you're sick is being abused. Right. Do you think that's where that requirement then comes from is that there's employers that think, you know, I'm not going to let you take a day off and take advantage? Yeah, I think it's a, it's sort of this sense of suspicion or maybe distrust of, of employees that they would take advantage of and are getting a sick date for no uh, for no apparent reason. So, you know, as a, as a family physician in the office, which I did for over 22 years, I mean, I could see that a patient was sick or if they asked it, you know, I would generally support my patients because if there wasn't a, a patient who tended to abuse things, I might have that discussion with them. But uh, for the most part, I trusted my patients as to when they were feeling unwell and uh, didn't want to spread their disease around at work, I would right. support them and write the note. Um, but I think there has to be sort of an increased level of trust for most people on this because the evidence supports that. Also, if it's a cold or just like a virus, like what is the point of going to the doctor then? Because you're just going to get better in a couple of days, aren't you? <laughs> exactly what we're saying. You know, the, the old line is with treatment, it gets better in seven days. and Without treatment, it takes a week. So, you know, it, it, it gets better on its own. <laughs> right. So what do you think, though, about the idea of taking a sick day when it comes to colds and that kind of stuff, though, without the doctor's note, should people be staying home? The people should be staying home for sure and, and getting over it, let it take its course and manage it symptomatically, you know, the congestion and the cough and the fever, et cetera. Um, but they shouldn't be at work. That's the other thing, because what will happen is people feel an obligation to go to work or they feel it's too difficult to get to the doctor or sadly, because of our kind of our system that doesn't provide immediate accessibility to the doctor, they will. They don't have a note, then they're forced to go back to work, and this just causes the, the viruses to spread uh, in the environment and makes more people sick. So encouraging people to stay at home, taking conservative measures, actually protects the rest of their coworkers and reduces the incidence of, of flus and, and colds during this uh, upcoming winter season. Also, Dr. Bachman, how do doctors deal with this? You must have an incredible immune system. <laughs> I used to, I used to think I did, and uh, and we're amongst the worst of it because we will go to work yeah. when we're not feeling well, and it's because we have a sense of obligation to our patients. You know, patients are scheduled for weeks or or months to get an appointment, and then if the doctor comes down with something, um, you know, we feel really badly that we're not showing up and have to rebook. So um, it's a problem. And uh, to be honest, the proper thing for the physician to do is stay home for two or three days, uh, lower the risk of contaminating other people and getting well themselves. Um, but uh, so it's a problem we also have to deal with, just like the regular, the general public. So you have that sense of obligation that so many people do. They're like, oh, I got to get this done. I can't leave it. I'm leaving people in the lurch if I don't show up. Exactly. And then we make it worse. Yes. <laughs> we spread that no, around. We're, we're, we're human beings too. <laughs> it sure, sure sounds like it. All right. So then your message then, Dr. Buckman, for the employers out there who are still kind of hard on employees sometimes when they call in sick. Yes, I think uh, in, employers should allow their uh, employees to remain at home with a sense of uh, you know reasonableness for a couple of days. Uh, maybe check in further and maybe require a visit to the doctor if it goes on more than the expected, you know, two, three days of uh, sort of acute illness. That's a different matter. And then maybe that's the time that people should be checked out. Maybe something is more serious like a pneumonia. But for the vast, vast majority, uh, they're going to be able to get better. And I think employers should uh, be more trusting of their employees, uh, unless they've had obviously people with uh, <laughs> who have led right. them to believe otherwise. Right. But uh, for right. the vast, vast majority of people, I think we should trust them to to be smart about it, stay home, prevent uh, bringing the, the, the virus and the flu to work, 
and um, and not necessarily requiring a note. And as I said, reduces healthcare costs, um, helps prevent the spread of disease outside of the office situation, and uh, and and allows the patient to recover rather than taking the time to have to travel to a doctor's office and take two or three hours out of their day to do so. Well, that is excellent advice, Doctor Buckman. Thank you so much for your time. Not at all. My pleasure. Thank you. That is Dr. Sandy Buckman, president of the Canadian... Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Medical Association talking about the issue of employers who still require um, a doctor's note, essentially, if you're going to be sick. They actually call this practice a public health risk. Well, some surprising BC health news to talk about this hour, and you're going to hear a lot more about this. Uh, We are having more and more conversations about the things that we need to do to stay healthy and look after ourselves, right? We know all that. And yet here in this province, we are actually experiencing the highest rates of infectious syphilis that we have seen for 30 years. So why is that? What has happened? Well, for the answers to those questions, we turn to Dr. Mark Gilbert, who's a medical director for Clinical Prevention Services at the BC Centre for Disease Control. Dr. Gilbert, thank you for being with us. Thanks, Simi. This seems like surprising news. Like, what's going on out there? Well, we've been seeing increases in syphilis as well as other STIs for quite some time now. Um, and uh, really what we've been seeing over the past couple of years, though, is that this increase has continued. Um, and we've seen some recent changes um, that are really leading us to uh, recommend that people get tested for STIs. Okay, what kind of recent changes? Well, a couple of things. So we know for uh, syphilis, I mean, the numbers uh, last year in 2018, we had 919 cases. And that's about a 33% increase from the year before. And it's about five times higher than it was 10 years ago. So overall in the province, we know that we're seeing increasing numbers of syphilis. Most of the cases are amongst gay, bisexual, and other men who have sex with men, and that's always a population that we're thinking about what we can do in terms of increasing testing and prevention. Um, Over the past couple of years, I think in tandem with the increase overall in the province, we've seen some increase in cases amongst heterosexual populations and also amongst women. Um, And that's a concern, um, particularly uh, because syphilis can be passed from uh, a woman or a person who becomes pregnant um, during their pregnancy to a child, and that can lead to congenital syphilis, which has some pretty serious consequences. So is this something that do you think we just took for granted, that this was something we didn't have to worry about anymore? Well, 30 years ago, actually, there was a lot of discussion about, like, that we could possibly eliminate syphilis from Canada. So uh, I do think in the past, it was a sense of, like, the rates had dramatically come down and potentially was on its way out. Um, but as we've seen with syphilis and we've seen with other STIs like chlamydia and gonorrhea, um, the trends in BC are very similar to what we see in other parts of Canada and North America and other um, parts of the world where um, trends have really been fairly steadily increasing, um, say, uh, since the mid-90s. Okay, so that's not just in BC then that we're seeing this? This isn't just in BC. So we see uh, there's uh, other increases in syphilis, for example, in Alberta and Manitoba, other increases in syphilis in women. We know in other major major urban centres, we see large increases in syphilis. Um, so this is uh, a global problem. How curable is this? Like, what is the treatment like? Yeah, so syphilis is curable. So it's treatable with uh, penicillin. It's one of the few infections still treatable with penicillin. Um, and, uh, and the important part of it is that uh, because people can uh, have syphilis and not know it, so many people may not have symptoms or they may not recognize symptoms when they have it, um, it's important to get uh, tested, which is testing through a blood test. Um, then you can get treated, and then that um, prevents sort of complications from syphilis. Um, and that's what we're really trying to do is to prevent uh, complications from syphilis. Right, but this probably fell off a lot of people's radar, right? Dr. Like they worry about things like HIV and AIDS, and do you think syphilis just kind of got left at the bottom of the pile? Uh, I mean, I think people in general are still concerned about STIs uh, in general and syphilis kind of being part of that. And certainly, like, if we were, you know, to talk to folks who were uh, from the gay community, I mean, many people are aware of those trends in syphilis and are concerned and are engaged in testing. Um, I think it's just always a good reminder to folks that if you're sexually active, particularly if you have a new partner or multiple partners, um, that it's a good time to get tested um, and talk to your provider. Right. Okay. So this, it sounds like, though, like if you catch it, it it's okay. You You can still manage to treat this easily. Yes, it is something that is treatable. Uh, And as I said, if it's caught early, then uh, that's the best time to get treated. Okay, so then when you're targeting groups for information, Dr. Gilbert, like who are you really trying to get that message out there to? 
Well, at the moment, I mean, certainly uh, we're continuing our efforts to think about uh, increasing awareness and testing strategies uh, amongst gay, bisexual, and metosexual men in the province. At the moment, uh, we are thinking uh, particularly about women or people who might become pregnant um, and their care providers, just so that they're aware um, that rates are a little higher and that, uh, you know, that we're now recommending some additional testing during pregnancy. Is it hard sometimes, though, to get people to go and talk to their doctor about this? I'd say for sure. I mean, we know that there's still a lot of stigma around uh, STIs not just syphilis, and that's a big challenge. Um, I mean, I think there's uh, uh, ways in which, you know, people go online, find information, um, other ways of being get access to information, but it is a, a broad problem in society that's going to take some time to shift. And so how do we do that then? How do we get it to shift? It's a great question. I mean, I think that there's a lot of ways. Um, I think over time, uh, some of this stigma is shifting a little bit. There's certainly work that can be done further work with healthcare providers, for example, about creating a space which is uh, comfortable and safe and people feel comfortable talking about their sexual history because um, it's not just people, it's also doctors who sometimes have that discomfort. So that's an area of focus. Um, it's also about thinking about ways that uh, we can provide access to the information in other ways. So for example, we have a program here called Get Checked Online, which offers testing for syphilis and other STIs without uh, going into a clinic. And so um, there are ways of trying to figure out unique and innovative ways of overcoming some of these barriers. Right. Okay. So then right now, because of these high rates that we are seeing, uh, what, what is your advice to people and who needs to know it? So my main advice to people is just to be aware that rates are increasing and that if people are sexually active or have concerns about the risk they have to speak to a provider um, or check out some great online resources like our website, smartsexresource.com. All right. Sounds good, Dr. Gilbert. Thank you for that. Thanks, Amy. That is Dr. Mark Gilbert, Medical Director for Clinical Prevention Services at the BC Centre for Disease Control. Let's get your federal election update, shall we? It's coming up October the 21st. A lot of people remain, though, undecided. I've heard people say that over and over and over again. Well, hopefully a couple of things will help you this week. One, you've got advanced polling that is starting Friday, October the 11th. It's Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. Those are the advanced polling days. Check your voter information card that should have arrived at your house by now for more information on where you can vote for advanced voting. It's different from your on the day of the vote uh, location. Second thing that might help you actually with a little more clarity on who you might want to vote for is what's going on this afternoon BC time. 4 p.m. this afternoon is when the uh, English language leaders debate will kick off. It's two hours long. We will have it for you, of course, live, commercial free, right here on 980 CKNW. Uh, So there'll be a lot, I think, of people watching that just to get a sense uh, maybe of what direction they should go in. Because if you look at the polling, we're in a dead heat. And that's what we wanted to talk about right now. An Ipsos poll conducted exclusively for Global News between October the 4th and October the 7th found that support for the Liberals up one percentage point to 35%, uh, down three percentage points for the Conservatives to 34% from last week. But you know what that still means? It's within the margin of error here. So we're still not seeing any kind of breakout moments for the big parties. Let's talk more about that polling and what it showed. Sean Simpson joins us now, Vice President of Ipsos. Sean, thanks for being here. Uh, great, uh, uh, great. Thanks for having me. Okay, let's talk about what this poll showed. What was most striking for you when you looked at it? Well, any time one party seems to pull away a little bit, last week it was the Tories by a couple of points, uh, it just snaps back and we're back into a, a, a tie position, uh, which is where we started the campaign. So uh, it seems to be perpetually in a deadlock, and I think Canadians are looking uh, for something to help break the tie, and uh, that could be the leaders' debate tonight. How high is the decided undecided vote right now? Well, we've got about one in 10 Canadians who say they have no clue who they're going to vote for. But among those people who uh, say that they're going to vote for a particular party, only 50% of them are absolutely certain that that's who they're uh, actually going to to vote for on election day, which means that the other 50% aren't uh, entirely committed to their choice and could still be swayed. Okay. And do you see any movement of any party right now? Well, in Quebec, there has been some significant movement. Um, in the aftermath of the French language debate last week, uh, the commentary uh, and analysis that uh, came out in, in the French language media uh, surrounding Andrew Scheer uh, was was not at all uh, favorable. Uh, and so what we're seeing in that province uh, is that the Conservatives are down by about five points. 
couple of the, uh, the other parties down a few points as well. But the primary beneficiary within uh, Quebec is the Bloc Québécois, up nine points to 30% of the popular vote, uh, showing a lot of strength in, uh, in rural Quebec uh, and likely poised to win many of those seats that the NDP are set to lose this time around. All right. So what between the Greens and the NDP, then that has always been a bit of a close battle, at least polling has showed us. Where are we at with that? Yeah, well, the NDP seemed to be stagnant. Uh, for most of the campaign, they've been around 14, 50%, uh, 15% uh, of the vote. Jagmeet Singh can't seem to break through. Elizabeth May and the Green Party, at one point, were up in the double digits, 11% uh, support at one point a couple weeks ago. Now down to only 7% uh, of the vote. I think a lot of people uh, who are maybe considering a vote for the Green Party have decided to uh, back one of the leading uh, horses in this race, uh, acknowledging that in most ridings, the Green Party still isn't really uh, competitive. So can you tell where that four points went? Uh, most of it back to the uh, to the Liberal Party. Um, you know, there's not a lot of uh, conservative Green Party switchers, <laughs> as you can imagine. Um, so when the the Tory when the Liberals were behind by a couple of points, part of that reason was simply because the Green Party was uh, was elevated. Uh, you know, with, with with but all along the Green Party support was softer, meaning people were less committed to that choice. Right. And uh, as we get closer to Election Day, we're seeing uh, the the fruits of that, meaning that people who were once considered the Green Party, but only, you know, mildly have have gone back to the Liberals, essentially. So you're looking at the top two parties then still pretty much a dead heat, though, right? Because isn't that within the margin of error? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's one point now, so yeah, that's a statistical tie, and the tie is also reflected in in some of the key regions in British Columbia, for example. The Liberals and Tories are within one point. That's a, a dead heat, um, and British Columbia is unique insofar as all four parties have you know at least ten percent support. Uh, the Greens will obviously pick up some seats uh, on the island, but um, on the mainland and and in the interior, it's really anybody's game. Um, and so, uh, in such a a tight race that. Normally, elections are, are resolved once the Ontario uh, votes are counted. This could be a late night in two weeks' time, where British Columbia could have a really important impact in determining uh, what the outcome of the election is. Right. Last week, it also looked like the Conservatives were on the upswing in Ontario. How does that look now? Uh, not much has changed in Ontario. Uh, province-wide, the Liberals are ahead by, by two points. That's essentially where they were uh, last week, even though the Tories had a little bit of momentum. That seems to have stalled. I think Ontario is waiting for tonight, uh, hoping for something to happen. I'm not even sure they, they know, you know, what it's going yeah, to be that's a or lot of pressure. it'll go. Yeah, but anything, you know, and, and tonight I think is the stakes couldn't be higher for Andrew Scheer. Given his performance in the French debate last week, he has one chance really yeah. to impress English Canada. Tonight's his night, and uh, I think people are waiting to see whether he's up to the job. Jeez, you think he'd be running away with it. I think that's the impression, right? You think, why isn't he farther out ahead? Well, given you know what's plagued the Liberals in yeah. the last uh, couple of months, or really the better part of a year, uh, you know this election is is tailor made for uh, for Andrew Scheer to to step in and and uh, and and take the reins. He hasn't been able to do that. Uh, he's running behind his party in terms of the person that Canadians think would make the best prime minister. Even though we have a top line tie in terms of popular vote on the best PM metric, Trudeau's up by five points despite everything that's happened. You're kidding! Look, that didn't change in the last couple of weeks. Uh, well, actually, uh, what's changed in the last couple of weeks is that uh, what used to be a tie on that metric is now a Trudeau advantage. Really? Now, Sean, tell me, is this not one of the more interesting, like polling wise elections that you have followed in a while? Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, there's some fundamental questions that we look at. For example, approval ratings and the proportion who believe that the government deserves re-election. Normally, approval ratings are, you know, 10 points ahead of the proportion who believe they deserve to be re-elected. But in this case, they're actually only within a couple points of each other. The fact that the prime minister has had so many challenges and yet continues to be the person who Canadians think would make the best prime minister. It's all sort of um, confounding and and uh, uh, confusing at times. Uh, even though there's lots of noise, nothing seems to be happening. It's it's almost like a campaign without a pulse. <laughs> uh, yeah, it certainly seems that way. And yet there does seem to be uh, a level of interest from the public. I thought it would be one where people tuned out, but they're not. Everywhere I go, people are still talking about this thing. <laughs> 
Well, particularly in British Columbia, where uh, uh, many of the parties, or you know, all four parties, uh, are are competitive in 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 many ridings, um, and in British Columbia, we actually see the highest proportion of Canadians saying that they're absolutely certain to vote. I think British Columbians recognize that there's a lot at stake here. There's many issues important to British Columbians: affordability, climate change, pipelines, and uh, you know, when there's a lot at stake, people are more likely to go out and vote, and we're seeing that uh, on the West Coast. Right. Okay. So what are you looking for then uh, over the next, say, 48 hours after the debate? Well, there's a couple of things. And it's really more than 48 hours. It's for the last two weeks of the campaign. One, I'm looking at, you know, what's happening in the 905 region of uh, the greater Toronto area, because there are almost three dozen ridings there, many of which are swing ridings. I'm looking at the degree to which um, uh, votes are going to split among the progressive parties. So if the Green Party starts going up in the polls, that's bad news for the Liberals and good news for the Tories. And the third thing I'm looking for is the extent to which millennials are excited to go out and vote for Justin Trudeau. They delivered his majority government in 2015, and it's up to them to decide whether or not they want to see the Liberals or the Conservatives in power in two weeks. I guess we have to figure out whether that group will come out with any enthusiasm to vote right now. Yep, because if people over the age of 35, if they were the only people that voted, the Conservatives would win. So the you know the strength of, of a Conservative government or whether the Conservative form government at all is entirely dependent on whether millennials show up and vote. It's that simple. Isn't that interesting then? Because you, then you would think if that's the case, they would be tailoring more policies towards young people to get them to come out and vote for them. Well, and the, I think the Liberals are trying to do that. Um, you know, in, in 2015, much was made about the increase in voter turnout. It went up by about seven points nationally. But what that masks is that voter turnout did not increase really among boomers or among Gen Xers. It was a nearly 20-point increase among people under the age of 35. They got out and voted and, you know, disproportionately for Justin Trudeau and the Liberal Party. I'm not, I don't know if I'm seeing that amount of enthusiasm again for the Liberals in our numbers among millennials. Certainly more likely to say that they're going to vote for the Liberals. But I don't know whether they're right. going to show up to the same extent that they did last time. And do you ever ask the question, Sean, of the intention that people have to vote? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. we ask people, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, how, how likely are you yeah. to actually show up and vote? And uh, people over the age of 55, you know, 80% of them say yes. that they're going to show up and <laughs> vote. The Gen Xers, you know, it's usually around 65% say they're going to show up and vote. Among those people under the age of 35, it's less than half. Wow. Okay. That's clearly going to be a big deciding factor then. Uh, Sean, thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. So interesting. That is Sean Simpson, vice president of Ipsos, breaking down their latest polling, which shows that we are still pretty much in a dead heat and we are getting closer and closer to the election. Sean makes an excellent point. He feels a lot of people are waiting for this English language debate tonight. It is the leaders debate. All the party leaders will be in it. It will be everywhere. It'll be on every channel. It's going to be on on our station here on 980 CKNW starting at four o'clock. We will have it live, commercial free. Two hours of helping you to decide who it is that you're going to vote for. And just given what Sean described here, the breakdown of where we're at kind of with polling, the pressure on these individual party leaders is intense. They're trying to score points against somebody else. They're trying to make themselves look better. I mean, that's that's a pretty intense situation. So yes, I'm definitely going to be uh, watching and listening tonight to see how that goes. And you can bet we're going to talk about it. You know, as you're watching it tonight, feel free to drop me an email and let me know what your impressions were because yeah, we are going to talk about it tomorrow. So simi at cknw.com. And once again, I can't say this enough. Please check your voting card. Advance polls start Friday, October the 11th. That's coming up at the end of this week, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. You can vote in advance polls, but just check your card because your advance polling location is different than your voting day location. Uh, but go ahead, get that done. Get it out of the way. Just hold your nose. Do what you got to do. I don't care who you're voting for. I just want to make sure that people get out and vote. Do it early because on the day, we, we tend to make excuses, right? Oh, I got busy. Oh, I forgot. Oh, it was rush hour. Oh, this happened. So get out and do it if you can starting this Friday with advance voting. And keep me in mind tonight. I want to hear your thoughts about that debate as you're watching it. Simi at cknw.com. Well, it's been a bit of a mess at the Burrard Street Bridge starting at about 8 this 
morning, there have been some Extinction Rebellion protesters that have shut that thing down. Global News reporter Emily Lazatin has been on the scene for hours now. We're going to check in with her right now to find out what is going on. Hi, Emily. Hi, Simi. Yeah, it's been, you could say hours. It's been about four hours since they've shut down the bridge this morning. Uh, they are gathering, they're gathered rather on the north side. Uh, they started on the south side, crossed over to the north, where they've now settled in. There's food, there's banners hanging, there's speeches going on. So I'm not sure how long they're going to be here for, but I understand it's for the long haul. It sure sounds like it. Okay, so how many people are we talking about here, Emily, and what exactly are they protesting? So I'm probably at least 100, maybe 150 now. Um, What are they protesting? They want absolute immediate action on climate change from not just our leaders, but around the world. Of course, we've heard throughout newscasts this morning that this is also going in other going on in other European countries. We've had some arrests in Halifax and Toronto. So they're asking for world leaders to act fast on the climate uh, crisis. One particular demand uh, that they are asking for is to have uh, the country Canada's uh, net uh, carbon emissions brought down to net zero by 2025. So six years from now, of course, if we do remember, uh, Justin Trudeau, Liberal leader, did make the promise to have net zero emissions. But by 2050. Right. Okay. So you've got a couple hundred protesters there. You said they're settling mm-hmm. in. Uh, what are police doing? Any idea of when the bridge might be reopening? We have no idea. I have no comment yet from police uh, or the city. They are here. They've been here since I, well, I was here at 7 o'clock this morning. Um, so they've been here since early on. They, they've known about it. They're really just standing back um, um, behind the cement barricades. And they're just watching. Uh, As I said, there have been arrests in other Canadian cities, so we don't know if that's going to happen here. We have not seen that yet. Uh, It's, what now, 12, close to 1 o'clock, rush hour 4 to 5. Yeah, that's what I'm wondering. So are they planning on staying there then through the afternoon commute? Well, um, they never they never wanted to give us a definitive answer, but uh, you know the word is they'd like to stay here through the evening till at least six or seven. So okay, so it sounds like you're going to have a nice day out there, Emily. Um, let us know if anything changes. I will, and the rain did stop, so it's it's not bad now. All right, well, not so much for the commuters, but okay, Emily. Thank you very much. Thanks, bye. That's Emily Lazatin, our global news reporter, who's at the Burrard Street Bridge. Well, right now we're going to talk languages. And the reason is that there's all different kinds, right? Spoken here in Metro Vancouver, when you're out and about, you probably hear them. But this past weekend, there was this gathering in downtown Vancouver where people were speaking a language that you may not have not only heard very much of, but actually just heard it in general. They were learning the Irish language. Our producer, of course, Alan Regan, who is Irish, was also there. Hi, Alan. Hi, Simi. So let me get this straight. You moved all the way to Vancouver, BC to only try to learn Gaelic? Is yeah. That- <laughs> you know, and you know, it's funny. There were so many people there who uh, traveled from all over North America to be there. And, you know, they had a better comprehension, many of them, than some Irish people, you know, who I've grown up with do, which really? is amazing. Yeah. I was telling you that, you know, years ago, I have uh, Rosetta Stone... Italian, because I've always been trying to, when I have a chance, learn some Italian. And, you know, obviously we learned French in school. I also had Rosetta Stone Spanish for a while. Like I just, I've been trying to pick up these languages and you can see the similarities in like French, Italian, Spanish. But when I was in Ireland and I saw the Gaelic on everything, I was like, I have no comprehension of what any of that says. (laughs) What are these accents? Not only the accents of people's voices, but the actual things over the letters and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, one thing we should clear up for people as well, because people might be confused. The Irish language, isn't it the Gaelic language? Like, what is this? Yeah. Um, Gaelic is is a group of language. Irish is one of them. So there are some differences between each of these languages. And uh, in Ireland, one of the national languages is this Irish language and it was that specifically that people were here this weekend to learn. And so they came from all over I understand to do this. Yeah, there were people from Seattle, people from Alaska people from Vermont um, and I got talking to some of these people who actually went did. there, of course. Uh, Alan's and- a very sociable person. That's why that doesn't <laughs> surprise me in the slightest. And I mean, well actually, what's, what's cool as well is I managed to track down, I think, the person who travelled the furthest. Yeah, her name is Lindsay Hayes. Let's take a listen to, uh, in English, what uh, Lindsay, uh, where she's from. Tell me where you're from. I'm from Washington, D.C. So let me get this straight. You traveled from Washington, D.C. to Vancouver. So you paid for your airfare. You paid for your accommodation here in Vancouver. You paid for the course fees. 
Well, so you could study Irish here in Vancouver this weekend. I did, yeah. Why? <laughs> uh, well, I've been saying it for a long time. I, uh, I took it in, in college, and then uh, when I moved to D.C., there was a, a night class uh, with a group called uh, Let's Learn Irish, and so uh, that gave me the chance to kind of keep it up, and I've uh, been traveling to Ireland to study as well for a while now. And Do you have any family in Ireland or family history of, of Irishness? Was that what prompted it initially, or did, did you just take this up upon yourself? Yeah, my family is, uh, I, I guess you could say we're pretty Irish-American, uh, but uh, it, it's an old connection. My great-grandfather uh, came over from Cork, and, uh, you know, finding people who kind of have that that common ground that you can link back to is always nice, I guess. So you started in university, is that right, as an adult? I did, yeah. So uh, my uh, freshman year at Notre Dame, I uh, decided I didn't want to take Spanish anymore. That's what I had taken in high school, and I was I was sick of Spanish. I'd had a lot of grammar. I was I was done with it, and so I thought I'll sign up for an Irish class. I'm <laughs> Irish American. This will be easy for me. That was that was not true, but uh, so you're in the highest level class here what's remarkable is there are people who are from ireland who have studied irish in school for 14 years and they are actually in the lower classes so you are here i suppose demonstrating a better level of expertise than people who are from ireland which is kind of incredible well i don't know and maybe i have no right to be there too so you're right of it but uh you know the more opportunities you have the more comfortable you are moving up the level and you know trying out challenging yourself I guess and is this your first time in Vancouver it is yeah what do you think of Vancouver oh I love it I absolutely love it I'm 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 gonna go uh get some Asian food after this because I heard it's really good and I haven't had it yet but I've been telling people uh, uh this is my first trip to Vancouver and I definitely need to come back and do another one that is so so Vancouver what she's done she's from Washington DC she came here to study the Irish language and she's going to go out and get some Asian food mm-hmm. you cannot get anything more Vancouver than that <laughs> what a multicultural weekend <laughs> yes, it is. so there were lots of people you met this weekend right yeah and and you know and here's the thing I mean if if, uh, if you learn Spanish if you learn French if you learn German I suppose you need those languages to get by in certain parts of the yes. world but even if you go to Irish speaking regions in Ireland I mean the locals also know English so I suppose learning Irish doesn't serve that kind of practical purpose. So I was so curious to learn, you know, why would people then take it upon themselves to learn Irish? And there were some local folks uh, at this event too. And I was able to speak with one of them, David McCallum. He, you know, he grew up in North Bay in Ontario, but he's lived, lived in, Van- in Vancouver, in East Vancouver for the past 17 years. And, you know, uh, he started learning Irish in his teen years, stopped not long afterwards, kind of lost interest, but he picked it back up again in 2016, around the time Ireland was marking um, the centenary of this major uprising against British rule. And that proved, I suppose, to be the catalyst for Ireland's more modern independence. Um, so I suppose I wanted to ask him, why would someone living here in Vancouver want to learn the Irish language? And he told me that it is to do with his ancestry, it's to do with his heritage, and he wants to connect with that. It's almost easier for me to think in the, the kind of grammar of, of Irish and Gaelic because it, it, just, it just feels more natural to me. And the more I learn, it's kind of like, you know, people talk about genetic memory and stuff, and I don't know how scientific a lot of that stuff is. I, but I feel like the learning process for me, it's, it's almost not like learning a new language. It's kind of learning a language that was already, that should have been there. And it's resolved a lot of the conflict in my mind I've had of just speaking English all the time. And as a, as a point of identity, I mean, it's, it's, it just seems so crucial to me. Like there's, there really, I can't think of many countries in the world, you know, if you're in Italy, you learn Italian. If your grandparents are Italian, you're probably going to learn some Italian, Chinese, Japanese, whatever you're going to pick up. I mean, that's the language of the country. So Scotland and Ireland are in the unique situation where, you know, in Scotland, it's the the indigenous language. In Ireland, it's the official national language. And the fact that everybody doesn't at least speak it somewhat, I mean, there's there's a problem and there's reasons for that. But it's, you know, it, it always baffled me how anybody could think they could study the history or the culture of of Ireland and Scotland without at least some knowledge of the language. Like, you wouldn't do that in any other culture. If you were studying ancient Rome, you learn Latin, right? Well, there are thousands of of historians and scholars that that make careers out of Irish and Scottish history, history, and they don't speak a word of the languages. And they miss so much of deep importance, and they can't access the first-hand accounts from people. And, And there's this whole thing of, like, you know, the language of your ancestors. And, you know, I've heard this more from sort of First Nations people and stuff. There's this idea of you are, you're connecting with your ancestors when, when you learn that language. And, and 
it, it, it gives you a connection to the past that you can sort of understand the struggles they went through, the outlook on life they had. So that's David McCallum. He's lived in East Vancouver for 17 years, grew up in Ontario. So he was also learning the Irish language. Uh, Alan, it, it sounds like it's it's difficult to learn because it's almost that's the way it was just described. It, it can be, and I think um, you know I mentioned the proficiency that some of these people who are self-taught, yes. um, you know how they how they've been able to wrap their heads around it. I think certainly the way that we were learning it this past weekend because I attended the course in, in its entirety myself um, it was very fun. It was very interactive. It was very focused on you know uh, uh, on picking up verbal skills, right. uh, which was very very enjoyable. I think certainly for a lot of Irish people when they study study it in school, they, it leans very deep into Irish literature and. Some Sometimes, you know, those stories are born out of like misery and heartbreak and, you know, all that kind of thing, which when you're trying to, you know, encourage a 15 year old to get excited about it, sometimes that can be a bit of a downer. But I think this was good fun this weekend. So when you were growing up in Ireland, then did you not have an Irish language class, say, the way we have French classes? We, we, we would have, yeah. And it's mandatory for people right throughout um, primary school, right throughout high school. It's mandatory. You have to do several classes of this per week. But yet, that proficiency, I guess, isn't there for a lot of the population, despite 14 years of this state education. You know, that reminds me, though, of like growing up, we learned French. Lots of people learned French, but you didn't learn French that would allow you to hold a conversation. And that was a complaint about the system for a really long time. I think that's changed now. I think now when you study French in school, it's definitely based on conversational French, making sure you can do that. But yeah, we learned a lot about written French, not so much about how to talk to each other. And it's funny you say that because at the beginning of the weekend, we were given like, you know, a little form to fill out. And one of the, one of the questions was, what are your objectives this weekend? What would you like to get out of it? And I was speaking with one person who answered that question by saying, I would like to know how to swear in Irish. <laughs> I take it they didn't go into that? <laughs> no. Not in the class that no, I was in? perhaps. Yeah. Uh, but there were a few Irish phrases that I oh. suppose a lot of people were able to pick up. And, you know, the weekend itself was organised by a, a man named Barra O'Scanlon from the University of Alberta. Uh, he was my instructor for the weekend. And uh, I asked him to help us out with a few handy Irish phrases. Um, so here, for instance, is how you say hello. Gia Dutch. What does that mean? That means God be with you, quite literally, but that means hello. Gia ditch. Gia ditch. Gia ditch. Gia ditch. That's how you say hello. That actually means God be with you. Literally means God be with you. Um, You can also say hi. Yeah. Uh, as well, that is spelled a little bit differently, but pronounced very similar to how we say it in, in English. Okay. But Gia Ditch. Um, if you wanted to say where you live, for instance, I live in Vancouver. Tame Imochoni in Vancouver. Tame Imochoni in Vancouver. Tame Imochoni in Vancouver. This is so fascinating to me because I love languages, but that's, I don't see any any like connection in there to any of the romance languages or anything. So it's really hard to wrap your head around that. Can you play that one more time? Tame in a homie Vancouver. Tame in a homie Vancouver. It's like that. Yeah. Tame in a homie Vancouver. Mahoney. So like it's a C word. Mahoney. Mahoney. Okay. All right. I got it. We got one more. And then we got one more. So we're wrapping up our conversation very shortly. So here is how we would say goodbye. Slan. Slan. Slan, yeah. So Slan. It r- rhymes with Sean, but like it's pronounced differently because it's a different word. Slan. That's just literally goodbye? Goodbye. Slan. Huh. I'm going to use these. I like these. Yeah. This was very good, but it sounds does sound very complicated. Will you do more of this? Uh, they're hoping... Well, this was the inaugural um, event of this kind. Uh, there were about 70 people there, and as I say, people travelling from all over North America to be here. Um, and it was supported by the newly opened Consulate General of Ireland in Vancouver. So certainly, I think the... Uh, th- there was definitely a lot of encouragement and I think yeah. they will be coming back probably next year. We'll see. That's all to be confirmed, I, I suppose. But we'll have to uh, send you back there. so yeah, we can learn some more Irish language. Thank you for that, Alan. Slán. 